gloomy, mostly Euclidean confines of Castle Gormagon, upon the lofty wind-blasted heights of the Plateau of Lang, I am Confucius the Ecumenical Volgi, and this is Radio Gormagon. Very warmest of greetings, I am the Tsar of Muscovy, and this is Radio Gormagon. It's a very rainy day over at my dacha, so I've decided to stay inside here at the Castle Gormagon and talk to you today about music, uh, specifically the music album. Uh, see, the, uh, the castle is a very busy place, so I don't like to record here. Dad Ho, my little idiot, has uh, decided right now was the best time to do the dishes. Dad, can, can you do that later? Can you, I'm doing a podcast. Can you maybe wait on those until I'm done? Okay. 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 So now he's now he's throwing dishes at me. Fantastic. And now the borzoi is going berserk. See, this is why I hate doing podcasts at the castle. Get over here, you little dick. It's a very rainy day here in Muscovy today. I'm out at the dacha, and then instead of outside and salting the horses, I'm. Uh, kind of staying in and staying dry and you know what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about music i think specifically the music album millions of americans are alive today who have never purchased a music album millions of americans are alive today who aren't necessarily sure what a music album even is and and that'll strike many of our listeners as weird about as many will think it's weird that we didn't always do it this way For the cohorts who have never purchased music on an album, here's a brief history. Over a hundred years ago, people found a way to record music, first on wax cylinders and later on grooved discs called records. Recording technology was ridiculously primitive back then and storage was difficult. As a result, early records were short and sounded really tinny to modern ears because recording equipment was so poor back then that a proper drum set would damage the recording equipment, so these little kid sets were used, and the human voice was so dynamic that it had to be compressed to avoid destroying the equipment, and as a result, everybody sounded like they were singing over a telephone. Although engineers solved the recording problems with improved microphones, processing, cabling, they didn't really solve the storage problem, so songs were so short because they had to be. You could only fit so much recorded sound onto a small disc. And while discs could be made bigger, there was an effective limit to that too. Too big a disc and the arm that held the playback needle wouldn't be able to reach all the way across it. Standards were developed to ensure your records could play on a variety of players, but this meant that records generally needed to be kept pretty short in duration to fit. These limitations were overcome in the 1930s, but the Depression meant that people weren't really buying expensive new players, and with the Second World War Right after, not much happened until the invention of the long play format appeared after World War II. Now the problem is that this new format wasn't really that popular, and people stuck with the shorter format discs that contain only one song per side. However, the idea of bundling an artist's songs into one big long playing format, the LP for long playing, was increasingly interesting to record buyers, so the public had a choice. They could continue buying singles, small records, usually played at 45 RPM with one song per side, 
and albums where a bunch of songs could now finally fit on both sides of a single disc, played at 78 RPM or the newer 33 and a third RPM. See, kids, when you bought a record player after World War II, it often came with a speed selector so that you could play 78s, 45s, 33 and a thirds, just switch the speed to the format your record was in, or you could have fun listening to songs really slow down or really sped up. The first albums were basically dumps of songs. If you wanted a whole bunch of Bing Crosby songs, you bought the latest album, which consisted of whatever the record company could get hold of and fit onto both sides of the long-playing record. As a result, quality varied from song to song, and sometimes you heard a version you weren't expecting. But it was way more convenient than trying to buy a whole bunch of singles and listening to them, swapping them out, or flipping them to the other side every four minutes. Well, this continued well into the 1960s. You could rush out and buy the latest Beatles single with the B-side maybe containing a song you hated. Although, sometimes the opposite happened. Nobody remembers Rod Stewart's Reason to Believe, but odds are you know it's B-side, Maggie Mae, much, much better. Or... You could wait all gosh darn summer and buy the group's album when the record company finally got around to putting it out. And these literally were just end-of-the-season dumps, fire sales. The songs are put on the album in no particular order. Sometimes a group's European album would contain a different song order from its North American one, and sometimes versions and even whole songs differed too from album to album. Eventually, Artists started to take control of their own material, and by the late 1960s, the album format was all important. Groups would agonize over the song order on the albums, with linking passages, themes, or special sequences that guaranteed you would want to listen to the album in the correct order. And this often, and gradually, came at the expense of the singles. So, an artist might not even care if the single sounded strange because of the now out-of-context linking music at the front or the back of the individual tune, because by rights, you were supposed to be listening to the entire album. Now, by the end of the 1960s, and certainly by the 1970s, album-oriented rock was king. Sure, you could easily pick up a single song, and there was no end to one-hit wonders with that one magical song that was so good, no one cared about the group's other material. But entire groups, particularly progressive rock bands, were producing entire albums that had to be listened to in a particular way. Or the individual songs would make even less sense than they already did. And sometimes it was hard to figure out where one song started and another ended. So you wound up with 12-minute songs or songs that were played back-to-back because it wasn't easy to separate them for radio. Artists got off on that kind of crap. Jethro Tull, for example, had a song on the Songs from the Wood album with a delightful Scottish name that was pronounced P-Break, as a clue to the radio DJ that this 8-minute, 35-second long song was perfect for the DJ to get up, get a cup of coffee, and get rid of the last couple cups as well. For a lot of us, though, this was really cool stuff. You could put on an album, hear what was basically an overture, and then sit back and listen to these thematically linked songs that flowed easily from one to the other. Progressive rock has its detractors, for good reason, but its fans understood how you were meant to enjoy these things, not as individual songs, but like an opera, listening to the album in its grand entirety. But this spread to non-prog rock bands as well. A lot of thought went into how a band put together an album. So this 
peppy, high-energy song that was perfect to open the album because it sucked listeners into it, well, it was written in D major at 140 BPM. The second song, well, we should use that to ease you down a little bit. That's maybe 90 beats per minute, and it's in G major, which is a nice transition. This third song in C-sharp minor, that's a bit serious. So that was a good third song. But the big radio hit, well, that's also in C-sharp minor. So let's put that fifth so the audience doesn't think that two C-sharp minor songs are supposed to be two halves of the whole. So take that silly little A-flat major dance number, sandwich that in between the two C-sharp minor songs. Well, a lot of thought like this often went into figuring this stuff out. You know, I wonder how many creative differences broke up bands arguing over album song order. You know, with the bassist wanting the song dedicated to that week's girlfriend, sandwiched between the two big radio hits, and the lead guitarist wanting his anti-American political screed song in the same place. Well, the point is, is that entire albums make more sense when the songs inside it are listened to in the right order. Many of today's younger listeners might wonder why a song from the 60s or 70s or 80s even became popular. I mean, listen to how dopey that thing is. But they don't necessarily get it because they didn't listen to the songs that came before it and after it on the album that their parents or grandparents took for granted. Take Pink Floyd. Some of their popular radio hits are, uh, well, they're okay. But when you listen to the entire album, they become astonishing in their proper place. Speaking of whom, there's always a dark side to any good system, and this is certainly true of albums. When a group is contractually obligated to produce three albums in five years, a lot of groups understand that each album needs to have two, maybe three good hits, and the rest can be songs of interest to the band. A rock and roll nursery rhyme the keyboardist thought was cute, uh, the ballad to the bassist's girlfriend for this week, and of course, the drummer wants some royalties too, so we'll let him do his dopey little tune the guitarist actually wrote for him in about five minutes back in the hotel. But even that stuff doesn't fill an album. So on every album, you get a couple of songs that are just... Trek. I mean, even Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, understandably what many people consider, rightly or wrongly, the greatest rock album ever, you know, that still features Within You, Without You, and Getting Better, which, you know aren't at the same level as A Day in the Life, being for the benefit of Mr. Kite, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. I mean, go ahead and argue with me on that one, but you know if I limited you to just nine of the 12 songs that you could own, you'd give those two up for sure. But you knew, listening to the album, that you had to sit through that crap to get to the gold. Of course, looking at Led Zeppelin's Coda album, you get pretty much nothing worth listening to in any order. A better name for that album would be Contractual Commitments to Atlantic Records for Tax Demands on Previous Monies Earned. And if you think that's harsh, you should know that that phrase is right off Wikipedia's sixth paragraph about the album. That was the cost of listening to album music. Okay, youngsters, here's how you did it. Just before a group released an album, the record company would play one, maybe two, teaser tracks off it on the radio, based on what the record company thought might sell well. In late 1983, teenagers everywhere got to hear Jump by Van Halen played every 22 minutes. In January 1984, the actual album came out, and boy, were you excited. You walked, or if you were actually a Van Halen fan, your mom drove you to the record store, and you plunked down $12 cash to buy the record, or $9 to buy the cassette tape version that would last maybe 
20 replays before it melted. Sometimes you waited in the line. Sometimes you got to the record bin in the middle of the store to find it empty. Usually there was that kid from your English class who worked there who would come out of the back with a stack of them, plunk them down and nod at you saying, What's up? And then you'd grab one off the top and do what everybody did. You flip it over and you read the track listing to make sure you even had the right one. Then you would race home, tear the saran wrap like cellophane off the big cardboard square, play the album a lot, and think you were doing all right. By the mid-1980s, that whole thing was getting annoying. Your vinyl records were prone to warping in hot summers, and everyone knows that cassette tapes would develop this whump-whump sound like this over your music, which was its pulsar-like warning that in a few weeks you would be pulling about 400 miles of tape out of your car's tape deck, trying to recoil it on the cassette tape by twirling a pencil through the cassette sprockets. If you were around back then, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, as if by magic, the record industry came up with a great idea. Compact discs. You could store digital copies of songs on a single, small drink coaster that, as far as anyone knew, never warped, faded, or wump-wumped, or turned to basketball-sized bundles of brown spaghetti puking out of your car's dashboard. And the best part was, you could convince millions of people to buy albums they already owned a second time for $17 now. But the reality was that CDs did work better. If you had the right player, a clean disc, good speakers, and you didn't want to hit many bumps while driving because the thing would skip all over the place. And over time, those problems went away too, and everybody was buying CDs instead of cassettes and LPs. Crazier still, some bands in the early 1990s weren't even bothering with those old formats. Their newest album was only available on compact disc. Sorry. Obey me. Uh, well, soon, record stores went away as the internet took over in the mid-1990s. And instead of dealing with a now-mustachioed manager kid from your English class, you went to websites like CD Now, paid only $10, and they were delivered right to your front door. And if that sounds familiar, it ought to. CD Now was one of Amazon's first acquisitions who saw the value in that model of selling and distributing music. I mean, who needs record stores? Well, not everything was better. You still had to listen to 10 garbage songs to get to the two you liked, and the plastic cocoon the CDs arrived in required union labor to open and peel apart. Obey me. But it was worth it to get the songs you wanted right away. You know, with a CD, you can skip right to the song you like. Oh, and, and look what Apple and Microsoft did. They put codecs right on their home computers now. Yeah, so you could listen to your music collection while you worked. And you could customize the artwork and watch cool animations generated at random by the computer in time with the music. And basically, you could be your own DJ. That was so popular, it became easy to create playlists. Your computer can copy only the songs you like right to your hard drive, and you could listen to them in any order you wanted. You really were like your own radio station now, except with all the venereal diseases and organized crime. The internet made that system possible. And it also made something else popular because, like I say, any good system will have its underbelly. As the internet landed in almost everybody's home, people began trading information back and forth. Work documents, recipes, photographs, everything could be emailed or shared via the World Wide Web. And some companies made this very easy with useful little websites to transfer files. A little company called Napster in 1999 was a really popular site for sharing information in this wonderful new digital age. 
Unfortunately, for Napster, people began using it to trade music as well. In fact, at one point, it's estimated that more than half of all information being traded on Napster were songs ripped right off of CDs. See, a compact disc might look like a record, uh, smaller, and sound like a record, better, and even have the same songs in the artist's preferred order. But they weren't records. They were basically tiny little hard drives full of files. And each song in a compact disc is a file, and files can be copied, and files can be emailed. So there was nothing stopping a person from buying a copy of Culture Club's Color by Numbers album, if you didn't already own it, and uploading all 10 songs to 50 of your friends, or even a thousand total strangers. Who needs CD now or Amazon? Of course, this is illegal. By copying a song you didn't pay for to your hard drive from the internet, you were stealing it. But people didn't care. It was free, man, and for all the years we paid $12 and then $17 to get the two songs that weren't bogus, well, that's fair. In fact, you know what? It was more than fair. It was the fault of the record companies for ripping us off all those years. So Napster got super popular. Plus, Napster made it possible for ordinary schmoes like you to get free copies of songs no longer available on CD, or ultra-rare songs, or bootlegs of mind-blowing live concerts. And if Napster didn't have available the most obscure song you could think of, check back tomorrow. Plus, Napster saved a step. Instead of buying the CD and ripping it to your hard drive so you could listen to it on your operating system's built-in music player, well, you now just had to drag the individual song file you stole into a music folder, and your music player would find it, album art, and everything. Now, I once met a guy from Ohio who had something like 3,000 songs stolen off Napster. Almost all of the songs he actually hated, but he couldn't not steal them. It was right there. Just drag it from your browser to your music folder. He had everything you could think of, and he had to buy extra hard drives just to store them all. And that's what it was like for thousands, if not millions of people. You might suspect that if enough people use Napster to create copies of every song on every album ever, then probably very few people were buying albums on CD anymore. You'd think the record companies would notice. Well, maybe they did, maybe not. But the group Metallica noticed. They noticed their CD sales were plunging, like everyone else's, and they began working on a new album to really win back the hearts of their fans. So imagine their surprise when they discovered someone playing one of their new songs from that album, and it hadn't even been released yet. That's right. Napster users weren't merely content to trade decades of old music and new music with their friends. They were trading music that wasn't even for sale yet. In fact, Metallica checked into it and found all of their music, old, new, and somewhat still in development, was being traded all over the internet, stolen by someone right from inside the record company. So, in 2000, Metallica sued Napster, and this forced the record companies into action. Napster was eventually able to shut the illegal trading down, and that ended the free ride for millions of people, and uh, pretty much ended Napster's popularity. But it was back to business as before. Or not quite. Steve Jobs, you know that guy from Apple? Uh, he took note of this, and as a business genius, Jobs realized Napster wasn't a black market because it was free, but because it was filling a need. People didn't want to buy music on CDs, just like they didn't want to go to record stores and buy LPs and cassettes. They wanted music delivered as simply as possible. So in 2001, iTunes was launched, well, using an application developed by a third party a couple years earlier. 
iTunes even had the crazy idea that people would rather have legal copies of songs they've been stealing for years, but they didn't want to pay $17 or even $10 for them. Crazier still, if you sold the songs for, say, a dollar or less, the record companies would probably make even more money than they were in the glory days of the late 80s and early 90s. Lots of people wanted music. They just didn't want to shell out 10 bucks for only one or two songs they liked. The idea and the technology had been around for a long time, but no one could convince the multi-billion dollar record industry to play along. Production, licensing, marketing, distribution, promotion, well, all of that would have to change overnight. No way. And Apple argued, well, then Napster is what you get. So it took the super billion dollar leverage from a company like Apple to get the multi-billion dollar record companies to agree to it. Google and Amazon followed suit. Songs would be under a dollar, and you could buy full albums for a massive discount. Well, you know the rest of the story. The recording industry is making more money than ever. Don't listen to them. They are. The pirating is just about stopped. Well, you can still find it, but it's just about stopped. And the music buyer can get instant gratification, as well as buy even crazy hard-to-find copies of obscure songs by groups only they ever heard of. Digital music distribution is about the perfect win-win combination in the marketplace. Everyone benefits. And to think, it only took massive theft on an unmanageable scale to pull it off. However, there was another big paradigm shift, and this too winds up in the music buyer's favor. By going back to single song purchases, music buyers no longer have to buy the crap songs buried on the album. It's true. Suddenly people are spending a dollar to get the stones, waiting on a friend, start me up, and hang fire from Tattoo You, but nobody is buying Tops or Heaven off that same album. And conversely, songs even the bands forgot about are being downloaded in large numbers. Elvis is a little less conversation. Just about forgotten when it was recorded, and its high-tech version lay dormant until it became a massive iTunes download. There's a large number of pretty decent songs, none worth mentioning, that are doing much, much better as rediscovered downloads than they ever did shoved to the back of the original album. Now, from your perspective, this is great stuff. You need only buy the songs you like, and artists are finding songs they barely remember recording suddenly putting good-sized checks in their mailboxes, sometimes decades later. Of course, what this means is that the old model of the album is dead. Really dead. Recording artists can't get away with dumping contractual obligation fillers on albums anymore. There are no albums. People don't want them. A band can spend time putting together a shoddy piece of filler, only to find it's getting exactly zero downloads. Now before, by dumping it on an album, you could at least guarantee some royalties on that phlegm because people would buy the whole album, the phlegm along with it. Well, not anymore. The impetus is now on artists to make every song count and not make fans wait two years for the next album release to get two more good songs. Now, you better record your very best and get it out there as soon as possible so you can monetize it. That seems like the best possible system, which means there's a dark side. All right, wait, well, what could go wrong? I only buy the songs I like. The artists are practically forced to skip the abysmal ballads and experimental crap, and I can arrange and rearrange my music collection the way I want, play it the way I want. So what's so bad about that? Well, the new problem is that in order to monetize your latest work, people have to download it, which means you want your song to be as commercially appealing as possible. And that's why you're not getting masterpieces from Taylor Swift, Bruno Mars, or Ed Sheeran, and why every Imagine Dragons song sounds like a professional sports team should be charging into a stadium to it. These artists 
need to crank out hits, even if that means half the songs are remakes of earlier hits or but simple rhythms with safe harmonies put over them. Yeah, we're producing easy listening grade pop hits now because that's what people download. But being 750 years old, I can easily rattle off the number of times I've heard this complaint about pop music. Hey, I survived disco with my brain intact. I survived bubblegum rock, house music, folk music, three-penny opera. The intellectually thin crap is always out there, always in the public's ear space, always kneecapping the Grammys. But whenever it gets bad, really bad, music suddenly starts to get good again. It's been a while, so yeah, we're overdue for that, but it is coming. And thanks to the way music is sold today, consuming good music has never been easier. Yeah, good music will be back, someday. But the album? Uh, it's probably not coming back. Today's kids will certainly grow up, buy songs by the same artists. But it won't be the same thing as downloading ELO's Out of the Blue and listening to the songs in the correct order. Those days are gone. But who knows? Those old concept albums can always be rediscovered as digital downloads. After all, that's how you listen to these podcasts, right? Well, that's it for this segment. And now a word from this week's sponsor, the Tap Out Grill. Hey, what's up, dogs? Come on by the Tap Out Grill, America's first mixed martial arts-themed family restaurant. I'm Ricky the Anaconda Maconda, and I personally invite you to submit your hunger to our ultimate fighting menu. Try a Kimura burger, freshly ground in pound beef, served with black belt and blue cheese. Good luck keeping that down. For you lightweight fighters, there's a rear naked artichoke salad. Or get a Muay Thai chicken wrap, which is great if you're clinched for time. In the mood for Italian, try the Nogi Gnocchi. Thirsty? Swing on by the armbar, where you can get a variety of liquor, wine, and enough beers to put a six-pack in your six-pack. We're located in Lang, over there by the corner of Klesmer Street and Lycanthrope Avenue. When you're hungry for good food, don't be afraid to tap out. And now for part two. For a few minutes, I'm going to talk to you about why the government improves business the same way that water improves gasoline. When we talk about the government taking over healthcare or cable television or the internet or any of the hundreds of things Americans want the government to take over, I'm always reminded of what a bang-up job they did with the metric system. Back in the mid-1970s, the federal government got fed up with America being the laughing stock of the world community because we rely on inches, gallons, and pounds to measure all sorts of useful stuff. The government decided it was time to switch to the metric system. Now, understand that I'm a big fan of the metric system, and I'm pretty comfortable using meters, liters, and kilos all day long. It's really not a big deal. In fact, Americans use the metric system every day, hundreds of times a day, and don't even realize that they're doing it because it's either invisible, uh, for example, lots of stuff you buy at the stores in metric size boxes or containers, or because you don't realize it's metric, like buying computer storage in terabytes or buying a 15-watt light bulb. That's the easiest thing to do and how you learn the imperial system. You didn't think about it, you just used it. But the federal government decided that that was too simple a plan and instead embarked on a three-year endeavor to force us to convert to the metric system. So instead of phasing it in like the free market did with car parts and two-liter bottles of soda, the government hit us with a series of uber-complicated public service announcements telling us how the metric system would destroy everything it ever touched. If you were alive back then, you certainly remember it, but if you weren't, well, here's an example.
The United States Bureau of Weights and Measures proudly presents the metric system. By 1980, our country will finally throw off the last vestiges of British colonialism and eagerly join the world community by using the metric system. Say goodbye to inches, feet, and yards, and welcome in the meter, an all-purpose unit that does away with intuitive measurements. Say farewell to the Fahrenheit scale with its arbitrary degrees, and welcome in centigrade, based on the more logical idea that water with no impurities in a vacuum will freeze at zero degrees, and desalinated water based at sea level in a non-vacuum with a disregard for colligative properties boils at 100 degrees. And so long to ounces and pounds, ridiculous units of weight, which are now replaced by grams, which are units of mass. Here's Doreen. She's making a family a box of macaroni and cheese. Her busted-ass old recipe calls for a quarter cup of butter. But it's 1980, and we don't use cups anymore in the digital age. Doreen needs to use liters to measure volume. No problem for Doreen. It's easy to convert cups to liters. Doreen simply takes the original amount and multiplies it by four. She then takes the sine of the result and divides it by the radians to convert this to the tangent, which is 7.62 by 39 repeating. She multiplies this by 22 over 7 to determine the circumference and then subtracts pi from both sides. With a quick bit of rounding, she subtracts the least common denominator and has a result 37.5 grams, repeating. Oh, oh, Doreen needs to bake the mac and cheese, but her oven is still using Fahrenheit until her husband can buy her a new centigrade one with the money he saved from his 1980 job at the geodesic factory. She's going to need to figure out how to convert Fahrenheit to Celsius. No worries, Doreen. Simply take the original amount and use the coefficient of the positive value in order to obtain the function that gives the slope, so that it is equal to the derivative of the inverse of c to the nth power. Because the derivative of any constant term is zero, the nonlinear function uses the power rule combined with the coefficient rule by multiplying to the power of x. Then, multiply that term by x until it carries to the power of n minus 1. Therefore, the derivative of x is 350 degrees Fahrenheit. No problem for Doreen, but wouldn't it be a whole lot easier if we just used centigrade? So tomorrow, when you fill up your 7.65259 kilometers per liter car with gas, you'll be thankful that the hard-working men and women of your federal government have simplified basically everything you do all day. Thanks, government. Mind-blowing live concerts. <laughs>